We are a family, not a family defined by bloodline or last name, but by a father, a shared story, a new way to be human. Jesus has invited us to more than just a party or a dinner with friends, but into deep relationship in the family of God. From moments of pain to moments of happiness, from grief to celebration, we are family. And despite the work it takes, the fights we endure, and the learning we do along the way, we need connection with other people, to belong, to be a part of something bigger, to know and be known, to love and be loved. We were made for life together. We were made for community. We are family, and uh, we're gonna talk about that this morning. Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. Good to see you here today. Those of you that are on campus and those of you that are joining us online, uh, welcome. Uh, you know, I know that you, like me, we're all kind of reeling from what life has been like in this country over the last three months. I mean, the division of opinions over COVID-19, both from the political front and the health concern front and the educational front and whether kids are going to go back to school in the fall, it's crazy and it's chaotic. And the partisan divide between right and left and the level of anger and bitterness among our national leaders is at an all-time high. People are out of work. Businesses are going belly up. Uh, uh, others are uh, in fear that they're going to lose their job. And it's, uh, it's, it's been really bad. The outcry over the terrible injustice that happened to George Floyd uh, has set off a wave of protest unlike anything we've ever seen. There's been lawlessness and violence and looting and defacing property and the whole defunding the police thing and the rise of violent crime uh, in major cities. It, it's, it's disturbing. And, and now the leaders of some of these movements are, are saying out loud that their goal is to totally dismantle the social and political institution of, uh, of America and replace them with socialism. Last week, a group of uh, protesters shouting Black Lives Matter um, stood in front of a, of a church, in Tro Grace Baptist Church in Troy, New York, and shouted at the people and the families coming in uh, save these kids, save these kids. And uh, they didn't stay outside, though. They also came inside and disrupted the service and, uh, and, and, and verbally and physically assaulted some of the church members. And this comes just two weeks after uh, one of the leaders, and I, I heard an interview with them, basically said, it's time to start desecrating churches. Mark it down. Um, if the far left has its way, no church that preaches the gospel is going to be safe. Now, all of that that you know, like I haven't told you anything you haven't, much of it you didn't know, but all of that to ask one question, and that is, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus at this time and in this place, in our country, in our community? That's the question that confronts us as believers. What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus amid all of this social disorder? that we're experiencing today. And so, as Johnny mentioned, uh, this summer we're doing a series that we call Disciple, and we're trying to address these questions. And um, the way that we're picturing 
what the life of a disciple of Jesus looks like is we're talking about it as a, as a triangle. And we're saying that discipleship is doing life with Jesus in community and on mission. Doing life with Jesus in community and on mission. And so we're doing three messages on each uh, point of the triangle uh, that describe the, these three rhythms of a disciple. And we are in week three of doing life in community. Now, one more thing. We, the way that we have defined community is like this. The gospel community is living in intentional relationships with other people built around life and mission with Jesus. Intentional relationships built around life and mission with Jesus. And we talked about how Jesus and Paul and, and all the New Testament uh, authors for that matter, they make it clear that living in community is absolutely essential for all disciples of Jesus. It's, it's, not, it's not optional because community is a primary way that the Holy Spirit transforms us to become more and more like Jesus. The Holy Spirit uses the interconnected lives of very different people to help grow our faith stronger and to grow our love for one another stronger. And we've looked at how Jesus' 12 disciples and the followers of Jesus that made up uh, the early church came from very different religious and non-religious backgrounds, social backgrounds, uh, some held different political views, and, and they had all kinds of different personalities, and all of this diversity made conflict in the church inevitable. And the same is true for the church today. Um, living in community is messy. It is messy business. There are no perfect people. Therefore, there will be no perfect communities and no perfect church. No church is a perfect reflection or a perfect representation of the Father's love. Only Jesus can provide that, and so there'll be always be conflict in any relationship. In any and all relationships, there's gonna be conflict, but we, as believers, as disciples, we can move through conflict if, 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 if we are of one mind concerning the one thing that really matters, and that is the gospel. And that's why uh, we have to be intentional and united around this common goal of pursuing life and mission with Jesus together. And if that's not our common goal, then our unity begins to unravel. Now, in the New Testament, there are two dominant metaphors for what it means to be the people of God. One is that you are a disciple. The Greek word is mathetes, it means an apprentice or a follower of Jesus, the rabbi. The other dominant metaphor is that we are adelphoi. Uh, the Greek word meaning brother or brother uh, and sisters or siblings. In other words, we are family. God is our father and therefore we have become his family through faith in Christ. In the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul talks about that and basically he says this, when you trust Christ, uh, for salvation, at that very moment, you are adopted into the family of God, into the Father's family. And, and, and I was thinking about this this past week, and I thought about my friend Todd, who some years ago, he and his wife April, adopted a, a daughter, a little girl from China. And uh, when Chloe became Todd and April's daughter, she also became Bethany and Chad's sister. 
And I'm telling you, Bethany and Chad are a great older sister and older brother. But what I want you to see is when Todd and April became Chloe's mother and father, she, Chloe, automatically became Bethany and Chad's uh, sister. And, they, and so she can't separate her relationship from her parents with her um, from her relationship with her brother and sister because it's a package deal. Now, I'm just stating the obvious. I understand that. But what might not be obvious and what we don't think about all that often is that in the same way, you can't be in a relationship with your heavenly father and not be a part of the father's family or what the New Testament calls uh, the church. Or let me put it this way. If you're a child of God, you are at the same time a brother and or sister to all the other children of God. And again, I know this, is, this, this we is greater than me mentality is hard for some people to swallow because we've been socialized into this hyper-individualized culture, but it's what Jesus taught us and it's what we see all through the New Testament and that's what I wanna show you this morning. So today we're gonna look at three pictures of gospel community as family and one response to those pictures. And picture number one is this. Jesus' vision for his church is that we are his family. His vision for the church is that we are his family. And the first picture comes from Mark chapter three, verses 31 to 35. So you can find your way there in your Bible. Uh, or I'm gonna put this up on the screen for you this morning if that works better for you. Mark three thirty-one. And his mother, Jesus' mother and his brothers came and standing outside the house where Jesus was teaching, they sent to him and called him, called to him. And inside, a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And he answered and said to them, who are my mother and my brothers? Now, that's obviously a rhetorical question. His mother is Mary, and his brothers were James and Jude and Joseph and Simon. Mark chapter 6, verse 33 tells us that Jesus had sisters as well. We don't know their names, but basically Jesus is saying, um, who's my family? And looking around at those uh, around him, which would have been his inner circle of disciples, as well as some of his closest followers, uh, like the women that followed him around, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus is teaching in somebody's home. He's surrounded by his disciples. His mother and brothers show up outside. They've come to take him home because they think that he's lost his mind. Uh, chapter three, verse 21 tells us that. Someone says, hey, Jesus, your family's outside and they wanna talk with you. And Jesus says, no, my family is right here. I mean, that's, it's just absolutely shocking. Now, what does Jesus call God? His father. What does he call his disciples? Brothers and sisters. Now, in, in the Greek, it's one word, Adelphoi, and it's not only used by Jesus, but every single one of the writers of the New Testament use this word uh, as the dominant way of referring to what you and I are together. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, this word is used. 342 times in the New Testament to remind us of who we really are to each other. So again, family is the dominant picture for the kind of community that Jesus is creating. And of course, there's all kinds of different communities. I mean, CrossFit is a kind of community. Marriage is a kind of community. The nuclear family is a kind of community. 
your BFF is the kind of community, your local high school, uh, your school is a type of community, all kinds of different communities. But for Jesus, the type of community that we are, at least his intention is, that we are a family. Now, this idea of family sounds really nice and G-rated and all that, and most of us give it a nice nod and say, okay, yeah, I know, we're, yeah, we're family. I remember when I was in high school, uh, there was, for years, um, in the Baptist church I attended, we used to close the service by singing. Anybody remember? I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. You remember that? Every, every time we'd leave, we'd go out singing, I'm a part of the family of God. And now I kind of think about it as being kind of corny, but, but it, was, it was true. It was true. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, we're the family of God. Now, for some of you, though, you might say, well, if you knew anything about the family that I grew up in, you'd know that using the word family is really not all that attractive to me. And, and I get that. I mean, believe me, I get that. For some of you, your family was the place of your deepest hurt. And I understand that. The good news, though, is that when you became a part of Jesus' family, he wants his family to be a place of healing for you. You see, the fact is, the only way to heal from deep emotional wounds is through healthy, loving relationships. Because we can't fix the broken part parts of ourselves alone. There's no pill, there's no mindfulness app for that, there's no book. The only way to heal the broken parts of our soul is not through perfect relationships because those don't exist, but the way to heal the broken parts in us that came from broken relationships is in loving and healthy relationships. So I'm saying to you, if your family background was not good, or maybe your past church family background was not good either. Still, Jesus wants his kingdom of God family, his gospel family to be a part of your healing, and I believe this church can help you with that. Now, I said this before, but I'm gonna come back to it, but the picture of gospel community as family is actually one of Jesus' most radical teachings. It's one of his most radical teachings. And, and to see why, I need to give you a little bit of background. In the first century Jewish culture, family at that time was patrilineal. You don't have to remember that word. It just means that your family was defined by your father's bloodline. Listen, not by marriage. Your family was defined by your father's bloodline, not by marriage. And that meant that family loyalty was first and foremost to the father's bloodline, his blood relatives, like brothers and sisters and sons and daughters, not his spouse. I mean, of course, they loved their wives, they loved their husbands back then, but the highest loyalty was to brothers and sisters. Now, I'll show you what... what, uh, my family lineage would look like on Ancestry.com in the first century. Just imagine if this was uh, my family. Uh, there's four generations here, so I'm the second of the of four generations. And notice that the only people, uh, only the people that are underlined and following the bold uh, type, only those people are actually my close closest family. They all possess. My, uh, my father's blood. Only I pass, only I pass the, the bloodline to the next generation. 
And also notice, again, if you follow that solid line from the top uh, to bottom there on the left, that you see it passes from one generation to the next through sons and not through daughters because the daughters end up marrying husbands and that's their own line there. So in Jesus' day, only males passed family membership down to the next generation. Females did not. And also in Jesus' day, a male regarded his father and his, his mother and his brothers and sisters and his sons and daughters, again, as family. They came first above the spouse. So married people in the world of the New Testament generally expressed primary relational allegiance, not to a spouse, but family, to members of their family of origin. Now, one more time, I know this is so strange for us because we're Americans, for goodness sake. I mean, but, but what, 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 what I want you to see here is that the closest family tie was not the relationship between husband and wife. The closest family tie was the blood relationship between siblings, between brothers and, and, and sisters. Now, hear me, I am not saying that this, is, this way of understanding the family is biblical. I'm just saying it was cultural back in the day. And I'm not saying that this is a prescriptive blueprint for family relationships. No, I'm just saying that when Jesus referred to his disciples, those who do the will of God, when he referred to his disciples as his brothers and sisters, they heard him saying that he regarded them as close as natural blood relatives. And this was radical. It was countercultural. It was scandalous in Jesus' day because number one, as far as Jesus was concerned, as the oldest surviving son in the family, because I think we can assume by this time Joseph has died, but Jesus' highest loyalty would have been, should have been to his mother and brother and sisters. And yet right here, Jesus is clearly saying that his faith family takes priority over his natural unbelieving family, and they were unbelieving at this moment because, again, they've come uh, to take him home because they think he's gone bananas. I mean, these are definitely not folks, at this time at least, who are concerned about doing the will of God, right? But also, this was scandalous because uh, to the religious leaders in that day, to them, it was especially scandalous because the kind of people that Jesus was elevating to blood relative status were common, uneducated people. I mean, even tax collectors and sinners, for goodness sake. All this to say, I'm saying that there's no way that Jesus could express his love, his loyalty, his commitment to his followers any clearer or any louder than when he says, you are my family, you are my brothers and sisters. He's saying, I commit my life and my highest love and loyalty to you, and that would have blown their minds. I don't know that we can get in that mindset, but this is the way it was. So family is the best, clearest picture of what Jesus intends for his church to be. We say this all the time around here, but the church is not a building. It's not like I go to church. The church is not an event that happens on Sunday morning, like I go to church. Uh, uh, the church is not something you go to every once in a while when you feel like it. We don't get any of those ideas from Jesus. We don't get any of those ideas from anybody in the New Testament. For Jesus, the church is his family a tight-knit family made up of people from all nations, all races, all social classes, all religious and non-religious backgrounds. 
men and women, rich and poor, for Jesus, when Jesus calls those diverse people his brothers and sisters, he means that we all, red and yellow, black and white, we're all precious in his sight. And as brothers and sisters, we are to be precious in each other's sight. And as family, we owe each other our highest love and loyalty as well. Clearly, Jesus' vision of church as family doesn't really line up with American individualism. But his vision, nonetheless, is that his community of disciples is a family, and we should see each other as family. So what does this mean? Okay, I want to show you a second picture. And this picture comes from Matthew chapter 18. Now, before we get to Matthew 18, I want to remind you one more time, if you read through the New Testament, Jesus and the writers of the New Testament are constantly referring to the people to whom they're speaking or writing as what? Adelphoi, brothers and sisters. Pop quiz, how many times is that word used in the New Testament? There you go, 342, right. You know what, you're the only person that's got it. Like the whole last service, nobody answered that question, but I'm sure some of you at home got it. But anyway, 342 times. Now, this is not some kind of Christian, easy, churchy jargon like, hey, Brother Thompson, how you doing? It's not like that. No, every time a New Testament writer calls his readers brothers and sisters, it wasn't some throwaway moniker. It was a continual reminder that all of these diverse people groups that make up the church are part, uh, are one, part of one and the same blood-bought family. So when Jesus and the writers of the New Testament call us to get intentionally involved in each other's lives, it's always from the foundational reality that we are a family and we are accountable to each other. Now let me show you that from Matthew chapter 18. I'll put it back up on the screen. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Now, if you've been around church for a while, you know that this is the go-to passage for church discipline or the way we prefer to refer to it around here is it's the ministry of restoration. And it is something that your elders and pastors practice uh, when the need arises. Now, without going into a full-blown exposition of this passage, I just want you to notice one thing. One thing, notice the family context that Jesus emphasizes here. He says, if your brother, now again, this isn't a throwaway term. He's talking about the, the, per, the person that you do life with, church with, your fellow disciples. He says, if your brother sins against you and you rebuke him, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Now stop, just Jesus is telling his family of followers that they need to care so deeply for one another that they would be willing to confront a brother or sister who has done wrong or who is going astray. The Apostle Paul echoes that same teaching in Galatians chapter 6, 1. He says, brothers and sisters, 
If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, meaning you, the ones of you that see what's going on from God's perspective, you should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. So, um, so to answer Cain's question, yes, you are your brother's keeper. We are each other's keeper. Or as I put it last week, we're to live in intentionally intrusive relationships with one another. So what Jesus teaches in Matthew 18 and Paul echoes in Galatians 6, he's basically saying care about your brothers and sisters in Christ enough to get involved in their lives when you see them going astray. Now, there's another aspect to care here, and uh, we see it in Galatians, the passage there, about restoration. If you read on a little bit further in Matthew 18, you see that Jesus goes on to teach us that we should be ever willing to forgive and restore a repentant family member. Uh, he said, uh, Peter comes to him and says, uh, Lord, uh, you know, you're talking about all this forgiveness and going and confronting people and everything, the people who do wrong. How many times must I forgive a brother or sister who sins against me? Uh, how, about, how about seven times? And Peter thought he was being pretty magnanimous about that. Jesus said, no, nah, not seven, but how about 77 times? Now, he doesn't literally mean count up to, you know, 68, 69, all right, you're out. He doesn't mean that. 77 is a symbolic number for an unlimited amount of time. So Jesus is saying, always be ready to forgive a brother or sister in Christ when they repent and ask for forgiveness. See, care goes both ways. You care enough to confront, but you care enough to forgive and restore. And now, that doesn't mean that in certain circumstances there aren't trust issues that have to be worked through. But the love and grace that Jesus shows us in forgiving us an unlimited amount of times, he is saying in the same way, extend that same love and grace towards one another. Let me just do a little by the way on one another. Over 60 times in the New Testament, uh, we're told to one another each other, like love each other, uh, serve, uh, uh, love one another, serve one another, accept one another, agree with one another, encourage one another, exhort one another, be patient with one another. Over 60 times, we're to one another each other. And that speaks volumes about how we're to care deeply for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. So in the second picture we see of uh, the gospel, of gospel community as family, Jesus calls us to care deeply about maintaining these relationships, to care enough to go after people when they're going astray and when they come back to receive them back like the father did the prodigal son. Now, our third picture comes from the book of Hebrews and this picture tells us why it is so important to maintain these family relationships. Uh, picture number three is the church is a family that encourages one another to stay faithful to God and God's family in difficult times. We're a family and, we're, and we are to encourage one another to stay faithful to God and to God's family in difficult times. Now let me give you the backstory on the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is actually a sermon that was written to a Jewish, a group of Jewish Christians that were going through a very difficult time. They were being persecuted for their belief that Jesus of Nazareth was Israel's Messiah and he, is the, he was the true king of the world. 
and the pain and the suffering and the discouragement and the disappointment of all the trials and troubles that they were facing had gotten so bad that some of them were falling away and they were going back to their old lives as, uh, as Jews. And it was one thing after another. I mean, no relief in sight. They were tired and weary. They were worn out. And as I said, some of the, in the church, to relieve the pressure and the persecution, were drifting back to their old ways of life. Now, I'm sure that those Christians living in those times had the same kinds of questions rolling around in their heads that a lot of us have in our heads right now. I mean, like, God, what's going on? God, why aren't you doing something? God, why don't you, where, where are you? What, what do we do to deserve this? Like, why is this happening? Uh, how long is it gonna go on? We got all these questions in our heads. And so this preacher, and we don't know who he was, and if you think it's the Apostle Paul, please don't write me an email and give me like a whole th- uh, 10 pages of why you think it's Paul. I will not read it. I don't care who the author was. Hebrews is inspired no matter who wrote it, so I don't care. So anyway, so this preacher We don't know who he was, but this preacher writes to encourage these battle-weary believers to hold fast to their hope and confidence in Jesus. And all through the book, he's encouraging them and warning them to not let their discouraging circumstances harden their heart. And so the preacher calls for the members of the church to encourage one another and to be responsible for one another so that their hearts don't grow hard and they wander away. So what we see here, again, this is another call for every single one of us to be involved in intentionally intrusive relationships with one another. Now, here's Hebrews 3 on the screen. The writer says, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God but exhort one another, encourage one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So the reason the preacher is encouraging his hurting friends to encourage each other every day is he, because he knows that difficult times can cause people to fall away. He puts it a little different that. He says, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Look at it again. He says, verse 12, take care, watch out. Look at this, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Take care that none of you allow your heart to get hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, now here's the thing. The core issue here in this passage is not a situation. It's not a set of circumstances. It's not the difficult times they were going through. The core issue in the passage is a condition. It's a heart condition, which is, listen, the our ongoing vulnerability, the ongoing vulnerability of our hearts, your heart, my heart, to be led away by the deceitfulness of sin. Here's the deal. As disciples, you and I still have hearts that are vulnerable to being led away by sin. See, you see, the, think about this. The anger and anxiety that many of us are living with every day these days, anger and anxiety, what does God call that? Well, I think God calls those sin. So have, my question is, have you grown so accustomed to being angry all the time that you don't even think about it as being sin anymore. 
And you see, if that's true, it reveals something about the condition of your heart. Because, and, and, and the other thing is, the, the problem is when your heart grows cold and hard in one area, like you got this anger constantly boiling under you, it's like when it's hard in one area and like you're justifying your bitterness in terms of um, like you're right and everybody else is wrong, that kind of thing. When your heart grows hard and unloving in one area, it doesn't take much time for it to become hard and unloving in other areas. And pretty soon we open ourselves up to this downward slide from a heart that's open to God and malleable by the Holy Spirit to a heart that's hard. Any one of us, you, me, any one of us can develop an evil, unbelieving heart. That's why he's warning us about this. Verses 12 and 13 tell us that there is something in every single one of us that places us in danger. There's something that entices us and deceives us and deludes us into thinking that what sin offers is better than what God offers. And you see, the reason that I need to take this warning seriously is not simply because I find myself in difficult, disturbing situations that can lead me away from God. No, no, the reason I need to take this warning seriously is that I find in myself a heart, a vulnerable heart that can be deceived and that can be led away by the enticements of sin. And hear this, sin is deceptive because it happens right in the middle of your Christian life. Right in the middle of your faith. Now what do I mean by that? I mean that nobody just wakes up one morning and says, you know what, I'm tired of believing God. I've just had it. He hasn't come through for me. I'm tired of it. I'm, I, I think I'll just be an atheist. That's what I'm gonna be. I'm just gonna be an atheist. Nobody, no, 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 no. No one just wakes up one morning and says, I'm, I'm sick and tired of living my life God's way. Like I'm just gonna start doing what I want. I don't care about God anymore. I don't care about anything except myself anymore. Nobody just wakes up one morning and decides that. Nobody just wakes up one morning and says, I'm tired of being married. I'm out of here. Now, people, of course, do come to those places. But it doesn't happen all of a sudden. No, the deceitfulness of sin captures your hearts in the middle of going to ch I said it, didn't I? Going to church. Like, we don't go to church. In the middle of a Sunday gathering. <laughs> In the middle of personal devotions and corporate worship. In the middle, middle of ministry and serving others, you can give your heart away to other things. And you can create huge gaps between what you say you believe and how you actually live. And it happens over time. Like I desire something, may not even be a bad thing, but I want God to do something, but he's not doing anything. And, and, God, and besides that, he's denying me of the very thing that I desire. Well, then my desire becomes a demand, an evil demand. That If God doesn't respond to my demand, then, then I just quit believing that he's worthy of my love and devotion. I mean, if he won't give me what I want, what's, what's the point of being a Christian? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, so you move from that demand to an unbelieving heart, and then I quit listening to what God says, and I don't listen to what my friends, my Christian friends are trying to tell me, and I fall away. You just don't, you don't just wake up one morning with a, with a hard heart. It happens over time. It's, it's gradual, 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 and then you go over a cliff. The process of heart hardening begins long before the hardness becomes obvious. I think that's the scary thing. Here's how Paul Tripp put it in a blog 
uh, some time ago. He says, sin is deceptive. Who does it deceive first? He says, I have no difficulty recognizing the sin of other people, but I can be quite unprepared when others point out sin in my own life. He says, sin deceives 10 out of 10 people reading this column. Or I, I could say, sin deceives 100 out of 100 people listening to this message, including the preacher. Spiritual blindness, he says, is not like physical blindness. When you're physically blind, you know you're blind. But, listen to this, spiritually blind people are not only blind, they're blind to their own blindness. They think they can see clearly, so the spiritually blind person walks around with the delusion that no one has a more accurate view of himself than he does. And because we're all spiritually blind, not seeing ourselves as we need to see ourselves, Tripp says, you will never outgrow your need for the ministry of the body of Christ. You will never outgrow your need to have other believers encouraging you and exhorting you and speaking into your life. You see, the reason that I need you to speak into my life and the reason you need me to speak into your life is because we all have vulnerable hearts. We all have hearts that can be deceived. We are all blind to our own blindness. So the preacher says to these Hebrew Christians, I'll put it up on the screen, he says, this is my paraphrase, brothers and sisters, we need to come alongside of each other, encouraging one another every single day, because this is your best defense against spiritual blindness and hard hearts. The point is, we, you and me, I, need to be living in close enough relationships with some brothers and sisters in Christ so they can help me see what I don't see. And so I can help them see what they don't see so that we stay faithful to God and faithful to the family of God as we navigate difficult times. So here are the three pictures. Let me just review them real quick. Actually, they build on, there's three pictures that build into one picture. But uh, Jesus' vision for the church is that we are his family, a family that cares deeply about one another, especially when a brother or sister is going astray. A family that encourages one another to stay faithful to God and God's family in difficult times. Three pictures that form one picture, and so how do we respond to all that? What's our response? Three words. Put down roots. Put down roots. Put down roots in gospel community. Put down roots in this local church or some local church. I just happen to think this one's a pretty good one. Put down roots in the church family. Put down roots with some people who you will commit to doing life with according to Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, where you commit to encouraging one another and exhorting one another every single day to stay faithful to God. To stay faithful to God no matter what happens in this country. To stay personally devoted to Jesus as your only real hope for the future. To see everything that's going on in your life, in our community's life, in our national life, to see everything that's going on from God's perspective because he really is in control. We gotta remind each other of these things. He really is in control and nothing is happening or will happen that will catch him by surprise. 
We need to encourage each other to stay faithful to God, and we need to encourage each other to stay faithful to the family of God, to stay faithful to the family of God when you find that you disagree with another family member, to stay faithful to God when uh, someone disappoints you in the family, to stay faithful to God and to the family of God even if somebody hurts you and hurts your feelings Work it through, stick it out, put down roots. Stay faithful and care enough to go to that person and have a real conversation with them. Listen, you, and there's, again, this just doesn't compute in this individualized culture, but you are, according to the New Testament, you are as strong as your church is strong. And your church is as strong as you are strong. And we will be strong as we remain committed to God and to each other. These are troubling days. We're living in difficult times. I have not been able to get out of my mind a passage of scripture that a lot of us read in our community Bible reading plan. Um, this was a couple of weeks ago, but I keep going back and I keep rereading this one chapter over and over again. First Timothy chapter four Here are the first two verses. This is my paraphrase. The Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will desert the faith and occupy themselves with deceiving spirits and demonic teachings. They will be influenced by the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. Now, I do understand that the context into which Paul was speaking in Timothy's day is different than in our day. But this statement is as true today as it was in Paul's day. Because we are all under spiritual attack. The evil one is scheming and plotting to take you down, to take me down. He wants your heart and my heart to grow cold and hard in these, in the, in these difficult days. He wants to silence your voice. And he wants to silence the proclamation of the gospel in this church. And the Holy Spirit warns us here that in the midst of everything going on, that some Christians will wander away from God and wander away from the family of God. And it's happening. People, Christians, are occupying themselves with all kinds of teachings and reasonings Far left, far right, they're, they're, they're teachings and reasonings that are proclaimed by leaders who want nothing to do with God and have left God out of our national conversation about what has to be preserved and what things need to change. Hear me, when godless answers are given to our most pressing questions, you get what you see on the news every night today. When godless answers are given to our most pressing questions, you get what we got. And you hear leaders say things like, well, people will do what people do. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's in the Bible. Like, in other words, you're okay with people doing what's right in their own eyes. I mean, even if it means terrible injustices happening, even if it means burning and looting and, 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 and children being murdered in the streets. And now I know the context of the original statement. 
but the silence of leaders regarding all of these things that are happen, happening to me shows that they are complicit in them. Hear me, right now in this country, right now in this country we're seeing what it looks like when God is left out of the national conversation. The truth of it is the answer to racism is the gospel. The answer to injustice is the gospel. The answer to lawlessness and violence and murder in our streets is the gospel. The answer to government corruption is the gospel. And if that sounds too simplistic to you, then brother, sister, you're being deceived by the hypocrisy of liars. When God is left out of the national conversation, you and I have to make sure that we bring him, bring him into our personal conversations with those who no longer hear his voice. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We need to preach the gospel to each other every day. And we need to offer the gospel as the answer to the most pressing questions of our day. But most of all, in these difficult days, we need to encourage one another and exhort one another to stay faithful to God and faithful to the family of God. We need to put down roots in each other's lives so that none of us is taken in by the deceitfulness of sin or the hypocrisy of liars. We need to call each other up to greater devotion to Christ, and we need to call each other out when we forget who we really are in Christ or when we minimize sin in our lives. Because we're all vulnerable. We're all under attack spiritually. Our hearts are capable of being deceived. Sin deceives us all. None of us is strong enough to make it through what's coming alone. We need each other. I need you. We need each other. We are family, so let's act like it. Father God, we call you our Father because that is what you are. We've come to know you by faith in Jesus, our Savior, and because we call you Father, we know that everybody in this room that we were waving at and high-fiving and air high-fiving and, and pointing at like in our stand and greet, we, we're, 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 these are brothers and sisters. And so God, call us to put down roots to where we care so deeply for one another that we will encourage one another and exhort one another every single day to stay faithful to you and that we would encourage one another to stay faithful even when things are such that we don't always agree. God, help us to be a family that can offer 
to the people in this world who do not know who you are and haven't got a clue about what, you, what the gospel can do to transform people's lives. Help us to be a family that carries that message forward. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.